I typically leave my Bible in the pulpit and use another Bible during the week because I get worried that I might show up one Sunday and uh, leave my Bible somewhere. I've done that from time to time, so I only have to worry about bringing my sermon. But uh, I'm going to have to start retraining my Bible. It's been it flips open automatically to the Book of Acts, but now we're going to have to uh, retrain it to open up to the Book of Philippians. We're starting a new series through the Book of Philippians um, this morning. Uh, I would like to give a lot of background because I think the more background you have, uh, the the more richly you will be able to um, to hear God's Word. Uh, however, I'm going to give the background as we go, little bit by little bit by little bit, uh, as it unfolds uh, through the book. So we are going to begin, really, just jumping right in, verses 1 through 8. This is the Word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine uh, for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for all, for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the body of Christ. And more than that, we thank You for her Savior, Jesus. And we thank You that He binds us all together and that His Spirit dwells in us. And as He dwells in us, I pray that He would be our teacher. Open our minds, open our hearts to receive and obey Your Word, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife and I just celebrated our fifth wedding anniversary at the end of February. Uh, my most vivid memory of my wedding uh, is watching my wife come down the aisle towards me. Uh, she was so beautiful, and still is. My second most vivid memory is how much my feet hurt. The pastor who uh, performed our ceremony, not only performed the ceremony, but he preached for about 35 minutes. Um, and uh, the shoes were uncomfortable. I can only remember him saying one thing uh, during his entire 35-minute uh, sermon. And that was this, that marriage... When it is going well, is the closest thing to heaven that we can have here on earth. But when it's going poorly, it's the closest thing to, well, you know. 
I have learned by experience that the first half of that statement is true. The second half of that statement, I have no knowledge or opinion about that. (laughs) If I in any way acknowledge the second half of that statement, I know it will certainly be true when I get home this afternoon. (laughs) But I bring this statement up this morning because I believe that there is something else Something this side of heaven that should rival even marital bliss. And I'm speaking of church membership. More specifically, I am speaking of the experience one should have by being an active participant in the body of Christ. Now I can just imagine some of the thoughts that are going through your minds right now. You know, what what kind of fantasy world are you living in, preacher? Or, uh, my marriage is not that great, but it's certainly better than listening to you drawn on for 35 minutes. Um, so I want you, don't tune me out, rather hear me out. The Bible says that marriage is a reflection of Christ's relationship with the church. So, what is more important? Or which is more, more important? Your relationship with your spouse or Christ's relationship with His church. And if this relationship is so special, this relationship between Christ and the church, shouldn't it be special in the way that we experience it as the body of Christ? Even though we don't always experience bliss uh, while we're at church, I believe that we can. Furthermore, I believe our text gives us the prescription for this type of bliss in the church. So let's look at the text. The first ingredient in the prescription is found here in verses 3 through 5. In these verses, Paul is telling the Philippians about the content of his prayers for them. And so he says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. First thing we should note here in verse 3 is that he begins his prayer with thanksgiving. He doesn't start with a, a grocery list or a laundry list of what he wants God to do for him, he starts with thanksgiving. And I think our prayers would be more effective if we also followed Paul's example and started with thanksgiving first. Because here's what's happening. Here's what happens. Here's the dynamic. When we begin thanking God for the things He has done for us, we take our eyes off of ourselves and we place them on God and we remember His goodness to us. James says we should not expect that we should receive anything from the Lord if we only want to spend it on our selfish desires. And so it's a safeguard for us. But more than that, it's just right and proper. God is worthy of things. What do you have that is good that you didn't receive from God? Absolutely, start with thanksgiving first. And there were problems in the Philippian church. 
There were divisions in the church. Paul mentions by name two ladies who were not getting along uh, in the in the Philippian church. Uh, he also uh, mentions that there are false preachers in chapter three who are trying to lead the Philippians away and back into Judaism. So there's problems here. There were things that he could pray for. But instead of starting there with the problems, he starts with thanksgiving, remembering what God has done for him. And that thanksgiving then in verse 3 leads in verse 4 to his prayers being full of joy. He says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. There's a lesson here. Thanksgiving in prayer leads to joy which fills our minds with, Paul says, the good things, the pleasant things, the beautiful things there in Philippians chapter 4. And it gives us greater joy. It builds our faith. It keeps us from approaching God with these negative thoughts of, oh, woe is me. So start with thanksgiving, which leads to joy, which leads to prayers that are more full of faith. And then notice what Paul is thanking God for. He is thanking God for the Philippians. And not only um, for them in general, but rather, verse 5, for their partnership in the gospel with him from the first day until now. And this is a little bit of background. What was the first day? The first day was the day in which he set foot in Europe. Remember, as we looked at the book of Acts, um, the, Paul had a dream. Things weren't going too well in Asia Minor, and he had a dream. And God called him to leave Asia Minor and, and sail across the Aegean Sea over to Europe. The first city that he came to was the city of Philippi. And there in Philippi, he met Lydia, a businesswoman, and led her to Christ. And then after that, he met a slave girl and cast a demon out of her. Presumably, she came to Christ. Caused a little uproar. Uh, he and Silas ended up being beaten, thrown in jail, then led the jailer and his whole family to Christ. And Paul, as he's remembering back to those first days that he set foot on the continent of Europe and began proclaiming Christ. He's praying for those Philippians with joy in all his prayers. The commentators tell us it's been about ten years since he first entered uh, Philippi and um, since, he is, since this letter was written. And here he is remembering back over those ten years and how those Philippians have stood side by side with him. Even when he has not been there physically with them, they have supported him. They supported him in their prayers. They supported him with their love. They supported him also um, financially. They, they joined him in his mission 
to preach the gospel. Now, the English translation here in verse 5 hides uh, for us an important word. Do you see that word partnership here in verse 5? This word partnership is the Greek word koinonia. And I know most everyone in this congregation knows the meaning of koinonia. We have one of our small groups named after koinonia. Uh, So what does that word mean? That word means fellowship. And this word points us directly to the first ingredient for blissful experience in the life of the church. And that is fellowship. But not fellowship as we tend to normally think about it. Paul here, in his prayer that is full of joy, or as we could say, maybe ecclesiastical bliss, uh, because of the, Phil- the Philippians' uh, fellowship with him in the work of the spreading the gospel to the nations. And so to understand what he means by this word fellowship, let's just pause and, and examine that word for a couple of minutes. Let's say that you invite um, a non-Christian neighbor over to your house for dinner. Well, we would call that being friendly. But if you invite a Christian neighbor over to your house for dinner, we would call that fellowship. Or, if you attend a meeting at church and you leave as soon as it's over, well, you've participated in the service. But if you stay for a little conversation, maybe even some coffee, well, then you've fellowshiped. In other words, fellowship has come to mean something like warm warm um, friendship with other believers. But this definition is a little too shallow. It doesn't pass biblical muster. Um, I can't, because of time, go into a full definition of of fellowship. It has actually a a very full sense. And here in verse 5, it has a limited sense. And so we'll look at it in the limited sense, but we're not going to look at it in its full sense. If you want to look at it in the full sense, I'd recommend uh, Jerry Bridges' book, uh, The Crisis of Caring. I think he gives one of the best definitions of fellowship that I've seen. But in our passage... It's clear that this concept of biblical fellowship involves believers not just being friendly with each other, but it, it involves them sharing their lives together with a goal in mind. And that goal is the advance of the gospel. The Philippians had bound their lives um, even a great even with a great deal of their material wealth, they had bound their lives and their wealth with the Apostle Paul. And they did this in order that he could continue the task of worldwide evangelization of the Gentiles. Now that I've given this definition of fellowship really being partnership self-sacrificing partnership for the advancement of the gospel. Here's why I mentioned verse 5 as an ingredient for pure, unmitigated joy in the church. Too often, we approach this whole subject of fellowship from the standpoint of personal happiness. 
Kent Hughes um, says that when Christians go from church to church looking for good fellowship, they are looking um, for an illusion. But the desires of the, Philipp- of the Philippians were focused not on their personal circumstances of happiness. Rather, they were looking above their own circumstances. They were looking to the worldwide evangelization of the Jews. And they knew that they could be involved in that great work by binding themselves together with the Apostle Paul, by supporting him in his work and, um, and caring for him. They, they were joined at the hip with the Apostle Paul. And so thereby, they were, in essence doing great things for God, even though they could not leave the city of Philippi. Their joy and Paul's joy was focused on God and on His work. And Paul, the Philippians, and of course, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself were in a three-way bond of... uh, Fellowship for the progress of the Great Commission. In other words, if we are not experiencing ecclesiastical bliss as a congregation right now, it might be that we're aiming too low, that we're aiming at our own happiness rather than aiming at the glorious advance of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago I mentioned um, to the single people in our congregation the secret of living contented lives uh, while not participating in sexual relations since as uh, I made the point repeatedly over the last two weeks that sexual relations is reserved for the marriage bed. Um, And I said the secret to contentedness is to be busy about God's kingdom work. It's doing things that are so glorious in God's sight. And some of those glorious things in God's sight might be small things that go unnoticed by everybody else. Little acts of mercy. Little acts of kindness in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving a a cup of cold water to someone who needs it in the name of the Lord Jesus. But doing something that is so glorious in God's eyes that He becomes our joy and our satisfaction. And so I'm going to make the same application um, in this passage, but not only to our singles, but to us as a congregation. I believe that if we, as a congregation, bind ourselves together with Christ for the unified task of pressing forward the Gospel, uh, that we as a congregation will be all the more happy and joyful. Um, Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's bad to get together, to eat together, even to watch television together and share our lives together. But we will be infinitely more fulfilled, more joyful, and experience more of God's glory 
if our first priority as Christians and as a congregation is to have a passionate pursuit for the advance of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. All the little faults, all the little wounds, all the mundane practices that typically steal our joy, all these will become less important when we have our eye on the prize, that heavenward prize, to paraphrase Paul in Romans, I mean in Philippians chapter three, that he has called us to in Christ Jesus. We have this um, Christianity explored. And on that little sheet, a uh, little half sheet, I've given you some ways in which you can participate. And it's only a small way. It's, it's actually very time limited. Um, and um, But that might be one way. Another way, we just had our missions conference. One way to participate in glorious things for God might be to contact one of our missionaries and adopt them for yourself. Stay in regular contact with them. And you then are partnered with them as they are doing their great work of evangelization in other nations. And through that, you will receive blessings. They will, they will be blessed, but you will be blessed, I believe, even more. The second ingredient that we see in our passage that brings joy in our experience of church life is being reminded that we have an assurance of salvation. Let's look at it from the opposite position. What joy can you have if you don't know that you were saved? Let me ask you, how can you crawl into a car with any kind of joy, knowing that there's the possibility that you might wreck and never crawl out of that car again if you don't have the, the assurance of salvation? Or how can you sleep soundly at night with the very real possibility that you might not ever wake up? How can you face life and all of life's uncertainties with the certainty that you will die one day without the certain without the assurance of salvation and death always brings with it judgment listen to hebrews 9:27 the scripture says it has been appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There's no wiggle room in this past, in this verse. You will die, you will face judgment. God being just requires it. But notice here in verse 6, that for Paul, this certainty does not bring distress. Rather, it brings the opposite. It brings confidence. It brings joy. Look at verse 6. Paul says to the Philippians, I am sure of this. He could say, I am certain of this. That he who began a good work in you 
not might, not may, but will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You know, there is no other place that you can go on earth for assurance of your salvation when you stand before God other than Jesus Christ. No other religion offers assurance. The best that that the best of other religions offer is a vague hope based on works. But if you were basing your assurance on your own works, as we say in the South, well bless you, honey. Because you don't have a whole lot to stand on. Because those works will be pulled out from under you like a rug. Not just at the day of judgment, but many times through each day that you live. If you were basing your certainty of assurance of salvation based on your goodness, based on your, um, your good works, based on your uh, desires. Well, let me ask you, how many times during the day do you do what displeases God? How many times do you want to do what displeases God? How many times do you not love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? In other words, if you were basing the certainty of your salvation on anything in yourself, bless you, honey, because you have a difficult life and an unbearable eternity. Well, let's say you're basing your assurance on what the doctors can give you. There are no medicines that have ever been invented. There are no surgeries that exist that will keep you from the appointed day of death. And there is nowhere else to turn except to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the church's job, it is the church's privilege to proclaim this assurance by proclaiming Jesus Christ. There is no more happy thought that exists in all the universe than knowing that you have assurance of your salvation. If you don't have that assurance, what else matters? That's why I say it is an essential ingredient for joy in our experience in the church life. I always get a little nervous when I go off script. But it, what's running through my mind right now is uh, Thomas Brooks in his, in his book, Heaven on Earth. And he says it's one thing to have eternal life. He says it's quite another thing to know that you have eternal life. He says to have eternal life is heaven. To know that you have eternal life. Well, that's heaven on earth. Now, what better thought is there? 
My Savior loves me. My Savior died for me. My Savior has forgiven me of all my sins. My Savior is not ashamed to call me His brother. And my God is not ashamed to call me His child. And to know that He has begun that good work and He will carry it on to completion for the day of Christ Jesus. I'm going to go further. If God has saved you, then you can know that you belong to Him and He will not let go of you. You can be confident in God. You are in the hand of the Good Shepherd, John chapter 10 tells us. And nothing is able to snatch you out of the Good Shepherd's hand. You have received a salvation. I think it's 1 Timothy tells us. That can never be revoked. You were loved with a love. Romans 8 tells us, from which you can never be separated. You have received, to paraphrase the Apostle Peter, an inheritance that can never perish, that can never spoil, that can never fade. And then the last ingredient, quickly, is Christian love. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you, or about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all, and here's this idea of partnership, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, even though they're living in Philippi so far away, and he's in Rome in prison, they are partaking of his imprisonment with him so closely are they yoked together. And so, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, he says, you're partakers of me of this grace. And then he says, verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul says he holds them in his heart. And then he calls God himself. Uh, to come to the witness stand and declare the truthfulness of what he is saying in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, I yearn for you, here in English, uh, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Literally, that's not how it reads. The word affection here gives the sense of 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 yearning for them in his inward parts, yearning for them in his bowels. You know, Mandy and I spent a couple of wonderful days away this past week without the children, um, celebrating our our anniversary. And, um, you know, I'm on cloud nine right now. It was a wonderful time away, just renewing our love for each other. But if I came and told Mandy... Andy, I yearn for you with my bowels. <laughs> well, I might experience the second half of that uh, sentence that we heard uh, in our marriage ceremony. 
But this is Paul's way of communicating his deep, his most inward feelings of love for the Philippians. And when you have this kind of love taking place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the body of Christ, in the congregation, then what happens is the church begins becoming like heaven on earth. In our selfish culture, you might be surprised just how many people go weeks and weeks without experiencing any true expression of love. We in the church have something unique. We have something special. We have something supernatural. Because the love we have is not something that we generate in and of ourselves. Rather, it is something that God gives us by His Holy Spirit. Christ unites us together. Christ binds us together. The love we have is, 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 is God-given. It's rooted in His love for us. It's a love that self-sacrifices for each other. Because Christ gave Himself for us. It's a love that issues in thanksgiving for each other. Just as Paul was, was thanking God for the Philippian Christians. It's a love where we serve each other and seek to meet each other's needs. It's a love that results in us yearning for each other with a God-empowered affection um, that, meet, that exceeds any experience that you can have outside the church because it's a love that Christ gives to us as we are bound together as a body with Him. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we have opened up the book of Philippians and begin seeing these principles of, of love, that is rooted in Your love, God, I pray that You would pour out Your Spirit continually upon us because who is worthy of it? God, help us to learn to love as Christ loved and empower us to love as He loved, to love each other here in the body of Christ with a self-giving love and to also love the lost for we were lost once. And you loved us and drew us to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.